You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. We'll take a break as we have our homecoming Sunday. Looking forward to having uh, Pastor Paul Wyatt with us next week. Uh, but uh, this, this message is actually going to start a three-part series, a series within the series in the book of Acts. Uh, because what we find in uh, last week, we noticed that uh, we, we talked about, discussed the life of Stephen, a man who lived life with the greatest of integrity. And we see that he is brought before the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and the high priest we're going to see asks him questions pertaining to uh, how it is or what it is that he's been teaching the people of Israel that day and time. And so P, uh, Steve, excuse me, Stephen brings forth a huge message, I can't get my words out, brings forth a huge message that quite frankly takes up the entire chapter of chapter 7. And so uh, I was talking with John this morning. I said that I was almost tempted to, to uh, look at the entire chapter, but we might get out about 3 o'clock. So I decided to be gracious and, and let's just divide this thing up into three parts, three messages. And so we invite you uh, to stand with us as we read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. We're going to look at uh, this, this first part to a three-part series in chapter 7. The great scientist Stephen Hawking recently, a few years back, wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. He wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. I think, with all due respect to Dr. Hawking, we can reword Stephen's message to, say, to call it A Brief History of Crime. Because what Stephen does is he goes back and he evaluates the history of humanity and the crimes that we have had against God. And so we begin with the patriarchs looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Then the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? Now, of course, you remember Stephen. People had lied about Stephen. People had said things about Stephen that were just not so. And so the Sanhedrin, they were wanting to know exactly what it was that Stephen had been teaching. And so Stephen begins this powerful, powerful message. 
By the way, deacons, if you think you can't bring forth a good message, remember Stephen was one of the first deacons of the church. Can I hear the deacon say amen? <laughs> Wives, can deacons bring a good message? Francis, can Bob bring a good message? <laughs> Absolutely. So brethren and fathers, Stephen says, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, which is the land of Israel." And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had had no child, God promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And of course here he's referencing the land of Egypt. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that they come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. You continue this lineage, you see, till you come to verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. We're going to talk a little bit about what happens here. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him. Seventy-five people we hear. Uh, so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. The kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and what it means to us. We just ask, Lord, for the empowering, anointing presence of your Holy Spirit this morning to allow me to speak the words that need to be spoken and hold back any words that don't need to be spoken so that through it all, your voice would be heard, not mine. And that through it all, Lord, that we, you would open our eyes, that we would see, our ears that we would hear, and our hearts that will apply these truths and be better for it. For it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. As Stephen begins this message, he looks at three segments of people. He looks first at the patriarchs. He then looks to the Hebrews, the Israelites, as they're delivered from Egypt. He looks at the crime that takes place there. And then he looks at the modern generation from his time, and I would even say moving forward as we're in the time of a new covenant. But you know, in the first section here, in the, verse, uh, the part he talks to the patriarchs, he discusses a sin that affects many of us at some point in time, if not all of us at some point in time, and that is this little sin called jealousy. Jealousy and envy are very similar. 
In fact, I read a book called, uh, in fact, it's part of this first Ph.D. class I'm taking at Liberty on uh, re- research in, in Christian education. But this book was uh, talking about um, uh, different subjects and how Christians need to have an impact in science. We need to have an impact in art. We need to have an impact in every, every field out there, medicine and every field out there. But he talks about, uh, one guy was talking about in this chapter about jealousy and envy. And he says, jealousy is wanting something that someone else has. That's what jealousy is. Desiring to have what someone else possesses. Envy is trying to take away something that someone else owns. And he gives a little illustration to describe the difference between these two. Jealousy is like a man who owns a half acre of yard uh, and and buys the most expensive high-powered lawnmower that you could ever imagine for that half acre of yard simply because his neighbor has one. Someone once told me, we have about three quarters of an acre. Someone told me, says, man, you need to go out and invest in one of these zero-turn mowers. I thought, that would just be an overkill for our little yard. I mean, we would be done in, what, ten minutes? I mean, that'd be nice, I guess, but it's just overkill for our yard. But that's jealousy. Buying something you don't need because someone else has it. Envy is like a girl. Ladies, just think of this. Think of this, you're at prom, it's your high school prom, you went all out and you bought the most beautiful dress you could see, and then there comes this girl, you can't stand her gut, she comes in and she wears the exact same dress that you wear. Envy is the desire of that woman that wanted desire to go and rip that dress off that other girl because she owned something that she had. That's jealousy and envy. Now when we think about this, we oftentimes... Think and look at other people. We, we play this competition game in our lives. Well, we compete in this game of life that we compare ourselves to other people. But, beloved, I want to tell you something. That's a game that you can't win. Because no matter where you go, you're going to find someone who has something a little bit nicer than you do, that maybe has done a little bit more than you have. Maybe they're a little bit smarter. Maybe they're a little bit stronger. Maybe they'll have just a little bit more than what you possess. And so this is a game that is unwinnable. It's a game that's unwinnable, and it's also a game that takes away from what God is doing in our lives. I heard a man recently say who's very wealthy, he said, I wish every person could have millions of dollars to demonstrate to them that money will not buy them happiness. Because this man was, had a lot, he had everything that money could offer, and he found himself miserable. How many of you know Tom Brady, New England Patriots quarterback? Tom Brady, uh, being a Packers fan, is a, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> but, you know, Tom Brady, you know, he's a quarterback. He's led the New England Patriots to several Super Bowl victories. I believe it was after his first Super Bowl victory that, uh, that he was interviewed. And, and they said, well, what are you feeling, Tom? You've won your first Super Bowl. And he said these words. He says, I'm wondering, is this all there is to life? Is there nothing more? I mean, I've worked all my life to get here. I've achieved the Super Bowl victory. Is there nothing more? Well, beloved, I would say to you today that there is more because when we realize who we are in Christ Jesus, we understand that we have a purpose that no one else holds. We have a skill set God has given to us that no one else could have, that you are made in the image of God, and God loved you so much that he was willing to save you. God loved you so much that he was willing to call you. So, beloved, instead of trying to be somebody else, we need to be who God has called us to be. That's basically the message in a nutshell. I guess we go home now. But no, we have a few more things we need to see here as we, before we cut you loose, before we have communion. Stephen begins this message 
And we see three points to this message. First and foremost, he shows that the patriarchs were prophesied to be jealous, that God knew what was going to happen. We see the production, the action of the patriarchs, their action of jealousy in verses 9 through 10. We also see that the patriarchs were protected despite the jealousy in verses 11 through 16. Number one, the patriarchs were prophesied to be jealous. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. In the first eight verses, Stephen is setting up this story. He talks about how God met with Abraham, how God was going to give Abraham this land which became Israel, that he, was, he promised Abraham that his descendants would go on and live forever, and we see that fulfilled ultimately through Jesus Christ and those who come to faith in Christ. But in verses... Uh, 6 and 7, God prophesies to Abraham that his descendants will become strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. So Abraham has this knowledge that his descendants will be in Egypt before his descendants were ever in Egypt. And if you follow along the lineage, you see that in verse 8, that he gave him the covenant of circumcision, that Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs, which would include Joseph, who finds himself in, Israel, in Egypt. So first and foremost, he shows a progression of generations that would eventually lead to Joseph, which would eventually show the people of Israel in Egypt. But, so we see this progression taking place. But a better question to ask ourselves, we could say, how did the people get into Egypt? We see this progression. But a better question is this. How did God know this? How did God know this? Well, God knows all things, absolutely. But I, I hold to... Um, Brother Dale and I, we were talking about apologetics. He knows where I'm going with this. Um, and if you don't hold to this, it's fine. But there are several different theological uh, perspectives out there. I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not an Arminian. But I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of that little area known as Molinism, which is, uh, has three tenets to it, basically. And that is this. If you go back and look at the, and I'm going to try to keep this as simple as I can, Thomas Aquinas said that God has what's called natural knowledge. And this natural knowledge is the way things operate in the world that he created. He also said that God has free knowledge, which means that he knows what's going to happen in the future before it ever happens. God knows past, present, and future. But a guy later by the name of Louis de Molina, he asked the question, how does God know what free people would choose? And he answers the question by this middle knowledge, that God knows what free people will decide before they ever decide it. And, to a, and if you think about this, you have a little bit of this middle knowledge yourself, if you think about it. How many of you have a family member? Now, let's just think about this. Here in a few months, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving. We're going to be celebrating Christmas, and we're going to have family get-togethers. How many of you have a, that member of your family who is that person? That person who is, uh, <laughs> we see some hands going up back here. Uh, that person who is just a hot-headed individual that you know that if you bring up certain subjects to that person, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong. Anybody have that member in their family? Several hands going up. You know that there is a person in your family, they're, going, they're just irritable, they're just waiting just for a moment just to give their opinions, whether you want their opinions or not, so you know not to bring up certain topics. Amen? That's a form of middle knowledge because you know how that person is going to respond before that person ever responds. 
And maybe you have a new member to the family, and maybe this other member of the family, they're just as mouthy as that other person. And I know you're probably sitting back saying, Oh, Lord, give me grace to help me through this. This is going to be awful. <laughs> you know? So needless to say, that's a form of middle knowledge. God knows what we choose before we ever even choose it. I believe we are free creatures, but I also believe that God is sovereign. And so working through this, God knew that, that Joseph, he was going to give Joseph this, uh, this knowledge that would happen. And we're going to look at that in a few moments. But God knew what was going to take place. Understand if you've been met with jealousy or if you've been guilty of jealousy, God knew you were going to do that or the other person was going to do that. The point is to get, let God get you through it. Choose God's grace instead of jealousy and envy. Amen? Choose God's grace. Understand that He knows all and He will get you through anything you may face in this world. Verses 9 through 10, we see the patriarch's production of jealousy. Now look what happens here. We need to give a little background information as to what's going on here back in Genesis. The patriarch's becoming envious. They wanted to take away from Joseph what Joseph had. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a moment. They sold Joseph into Egypt. They sold him as a slave. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he was made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now let's back up. Genesis chapter 37. Let's talk about what's going on here. We have, this story begins with Jacob. Jacob saw this girl that just rocked his world. He was like Bob. He, he, he saw Francis, and man, he was just smitten. Amen, Francis? He was <laughs> just smitten. Jacob saw this woman named Rachel, and he was just smitten. He loved this woman. Oh, she was the prettiest thing he'd ever seen. And so he goes to, to Laban, uh, Rachel's father, and says, Laban, I want to marry this girl. I want to marry your daughter. Well, Laban had two daughters, you see. He had Rachel and he had a, this older daughter named Leah. And Leah, Leah was the sweetest girl you'd ever meet, but she was kind of on the plainer side. You know, you know uh, this younger girl, she had all the glitz and glamour, and Leah, she was, uh, she was up on the plainer side. And so Laban was kind of a bit of a shyster, you see. He says, listen, Jacob, you work for me seven years, and I'll give you the hand of my daughter. Okay, and so, and so Jacob works for Laban for seven years, and, you know, at that wedding day, you know, the, the daughter, she's got her face all covered up and everything like that. She's coming in the wedding apparel, and uh, the, the minister there says, uh, says, do you, young lady? She says, I do. Do you, Jacob? He says, I do. And then after the ceremony's over, she unveils herself to see that that's not the youngest daughter, that's Leah. And Jacob says, wait a minute, what have you done here? What have you done here, Laban? That you, you, you've broken your promise. He says, no, I didn't. I said, you could have my daughter. I just didn't say which one. You know, that's what happened. So he says, I tell you what. You work for me another seven years, I'll give you my other daughter. And so he's married to both of these daughters. And I'm going to tell you what. If ever the Bible has promoted monogamy, it's through this story because there was nothing but chaos in this family from, from the very first point. Leah and this other girl, she was in, they were in competition. Leah had all the sons. This younger daughter didn't have any, and she was getting aggravated at him. And so finally, as time goes on, uh, she's able to finally conceive a son, and his name's Joseph. Now, he's had, Jacob's had all these other children with Leah, and he finally has that love son from, the, from his favored bride, and his name's Joseph. 
So there's already this family uh, hostility here in the family already. Well, God gives Joseph a dream one night. And Joseph, he's a little bit on the naive side. He comes hopping and skipping. This dream is to tell Joseph that he is going to rule over all his brothers. And Joseph is a little on the naive side. He comes skipping in. He hops down, and they're sitting there at the dinner table. And one of the brothers probably looks at him and says, What are you so happy for, Happy Jack? He says, Oh, God just gave me a dream. You're not going to believe what this dream is about. So the brothers say, Tell me. God told me that I'm going to be the best brother out of all of you brothers, and I'm going to reign over all of you. After a moment of silence, I can just hear laughter bursting forth at the dinner table that day. Well, this aggravated and annoyed the brothers to no end, till finally they took Joseph and they threw him down a well. They threw him down a well, and then they finally said, wait a minute, let's make some money off this. So they, they, they pull him back up out of this well, and they say, let's sell him into slavery so at least we can make some money off this deal. So they sell Joseph into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Think about this now. Joseph is about 17 years old. He finds himself in a foreign land. He's a handsome sort. He's charged with a crime he did not commit by Potiphar's wife. He finds himself in prison for two years. Okay, for two years, and after which time, finally Egypt sees the wonder of Joseph and the gifts that he's been given, and he's, been, he's elevated to this high status in Egypt's court. Now think about this for a moment. You may find yourself in a situation where you feel neglected. You may find yourself, think about Joseph who was sold into slavery. He knew God loved him, but he was sold into slavery. He found himself in prison for two years for, for a crime he did not commit, after which time he had to be wondering, what in the world is going on here, God? You said I was going to be elevated, and here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the lowest of low. But Joseph remained faithful to God, and what we see is that God elevates him to a status higher than he could ever imagine or anyone could ever imagine because Joseph found himself ranking high in Egypt's court. And it was because of Joseph, we're going to see in a few moments, that the nation of Israel was saved. Let me just tell you something. Here's the problem with jealousy and envy. Beloved, you have to make the choice today. As you look around, you may see other people and you may think that other person's got it together. I want to be that like that other person. I may want to do like what this other person has or I want what that other person has or I don't want that person to have whatever it may be. I've learned a long time ago and God keeps reminding me of this thing. I would lo- I, sometimes I look at my ministry and I think, oh man, I would love to be able to, to preach at crowds like Billy Graham does and, and other individuals, David, Jeremiah, all that would be fantastic. But God keeps reminding me of a certain fact. You can be a second-rate Billy Graham or you can be a first-rate Brian Chilton. Which one do you want to be? Amen? Beloved, you can be like someone else, but you're going to be a second-rate someone else. Or you can be a first-grade, number one, who you are, because God has called you to be who you are. He hasn't called you to be someone else. He's called you to do what He has called you to do. He's called you to serve where God has placed you to serve. You are here today not by an accident, but because of the sovereign will of God, because you have a place here in this community today. Amen? You have a ministry. You have, you have found the favor of God. If you've been blessed and you've been saved and you've been called, beloved, you have found the favor of God. God has shown forth His favor upon you. And don't try to be someone else. You be the person God has called you to be because there's no one else like you. 
There's no one else like Brian Chilton. Bob says I'm into that. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Just teasing. But there's no one else like you, so be the person that God has called you to be. Don't try to be someone else. Don't consume yourself with what others have or you don't or what you want in life. Work hard to be the best God has called you to be. Absolutely. But you find the person God has called you to be. You find the ministry where God has placed you to be and you serve with all your might, heart, soul, strength, and all you have, whatever your hands find to do for the Lord, do it with all your might. Number three, the patriarchs were protected despite jealousy. Amazingly, God protected his people despite their sinful actions. As Ashley mentioned a few moments ago, if we really got what we deserved, we wouldn't have the favor of God, would we? If we really received what we deserved, we would not find heaven. It's by grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are saved because of God's good favor. Amen? You are saved because God loves you with an everlasting love. God knew you before you were ever even born, and He chose to love you before you were ever even born. Amazingly, God protected the people despite their sinful actions. Disaster had overtaken the people of Israel. And Joseph, he was elevated and given a high status in Egypt. But because of Joseph's faith and trust in the Lord, God protected him. Again, I go back to this story. Joseph could have given up on what God had called him to be when he was sold into slavery. But he didn't. He kept trusting the Lord. Joseph could have easily given up when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of doing things that he did not do, but he still trusted the Lord. He could have given up. He could have given up when he spent two years in prison seeing other people being able to, to be get, uh, taken out of that prison for a crime he didn't commit. For two years he was in that prison cell, but he did not give up. He kept having faith in the Lord, and because of his unwavering faith, God delivered him. God protected him, and God used Joseph to save all of Israel. In fact, if it had not been for Joseph's faith, if it had not been for Joseph's faith, I don't think we would have seen our Savior come. Because it was actually through the lineage, and ironically so, it was through the lineage of Judah, which was one of the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Judah didn't know the calling God had placed upon him. And it was actually through Judah that Christ would come. But it was because Joseph's action and his faith that God worked through him to save the brothers, to save the nation that, our, that, that allowed our Messiah to still come. Joseph was overlooked. Joseph was abused. Joseph was given the short end of the stick many times. But again, Joseph kept trusting in the Lord. And Joseph, when he's met with his brothers, he gives one of the deepest theological truths I think we find in Scripture. When Joseph was met with his brothers, his brothers finally understood that this was Joseph, the one whom they had sold into slavery. And they thought to themselves, oh no, what is he going to do to us? My goodness, I mean, think of yourself if you were one of the, one of the siblings who had just sold a, a, your, your brother or sister into slavery and you come and you really need their help and all of a sudden you find they're a high-ranking official and they can get rid of you if they so chose. There had to be some, ooh, some concerning thoughts in these brothers' minds. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
Can you see Joseph's faith in it? What you meant for evil, God meant for good, and God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20. You trust in the Lord, and God will bring you through any circumstance of life. There's no need to be jealous of what someone else has, because God has given you His favor. And if God has given you His favor, God has saved you, God has called you, then He has something for you to do that no one else can do. I can't do what God's called you to do. Did you know that? I can't do what He's called you to do. No one else can do what God's called you to do. You have a special divine calling upon your life. God will protect us through the storms of life. I was amazed to find, I was praying for Douglas and Beverly Ponder, Marcia Shaw's uh, parents, they were down in Florida when that hurricane hit. I just had an uneasy feeling the whole time. And I kept praying, I kept praying, and I was joined beside many countless others who were praying for the Ponders, were praying for individuals in South Florida. And, and Marcia sent me a text not long ago showing the, their home down in Florida. By the grace of God. You know, I was speaking with Dennis beforehand. He said they didn't know if this area was flooded, if they even had a home left. This area was flooded. And to make matters worse, I don't see how people do this. This is just horrible to think that there were people looting the homes that were empty. It takes a sorry individual to do something. I'm sorry, that may not be a pastoral terminology, but it takes a sorry person to loot someone's home after a disaster like that. Amen? I know, it really is. But they didn't know if they even had anything left after that. But he sent back a picture and showed us that only just a small section of their roof was damaged. I'm going to tell you, I don't know about anybody else, but I think that was a protection of God over their home. Beloved, there are many things we don't understand, but I do know one thing to be true. Romans 8, 28 holds true, that all things work together for good. doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be good, but it means that God is working and shaping all things in your life to bring forth a good to those who love Christ and are called according to His purpose. Don't be jealous about what someone else has. You focus on who God has called you to be and be the best you that God has called you to be. He saved you. He loves you. He has an anointing upon your life. So don't worry about what everyone else has. You worry about what God has blessed you with and be thankful for that and do what He's called you to do. This message is, is really unique because I was listening to uh, Liberty University's convocation the other day and they had a guy who's a pastor down in Dallas, Texas. And Robert Madu is his name, and he was given a message on the exact same topic, so I was already charged up about this. But he, in this message, he gave two basic points. He said, stay in your lane and keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in your lane and keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, he uses a metaphor comparing it to driving down the interstate, but I had to think about this because I find myself in this situation many times God's still working on me. I'm still a work in progress, and I don't have much patience. <laughs> My wife says, amen. Uh, I, I'm a man of little patience. God continues to work on me to give me patience. And this is clearly seen when I'm at a checkout line and at Food Line or Walmart or something like that. If you go, have you ever been there, and you see all the aisles just completely packed, and I'll pull up and I'll go to aisle 7, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, come on, I just have just a few products. Come on, let's hurry this thing up, hurry this thing up, hurry this thing up, hurry this thing up. Then I notice aisle six, well, they're moving faster. So I pull out, and I go to aisle six. Well, this thing is slower than aisle seven. So I thought, well, forget that. I go over to aisle eight. One time I did this. This is honest goodness truth. I did this. I switched lanes two or three times, and if I had simply stayed in my lane, I would have gotten out quicker than I would have if by switching lanes. 
Aisle 7 was done uh, 10 times, uh, 10 minutes faster than the aisle I found myself in. I got behind this one person one time. They had like three products, but then they had a problem with a credit card. Then they had to call the manager to come to clear the thing. I'm like, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. If I had simply stayed in the aisle that I found myself in, I would have been much better off. And that was the point he was trying to make, and I think that's the point Stephen gives us here. Find God's calling upon your life. Don't do like the patriarch brothers did. They got, became so envious over Joseph, they became so envious over him that it drove them crazy, drove them mad. Find your calling in life. Realize that you are saved, that you are born again. If you've come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've, been, you've received the gift of eternal life. If you haven't, we, we encourage you to come down now to receive Him as Savior and God. But if God has saved you, God has anointed you, God has called you, don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Because I'm going to guarantee you, you're never going to win that game if you do. Focus on who God has called you to be. Stay in your lane and keep your eyes on Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Three things I want to just close by application on this as you're quietly praying. We'll get ready to do our, our communion here in just a moment. Number one, remember to saturate yourself in Scripture so that you learn more about the nature of God. Don't waste your precious time in life worrying about what everyone else is doing. And remember that little is much when God is in it. You may not think that you're making a big difference in life, but if you're faithful to God, even the small things have major ramifications just simply by being faithful. If you're here today and you've never seen Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to come down today and receive Him before it's eternally too late. I mean, just to be honest with you, we have wars, we have rumors of wars, we have earthquakes, hurricanes. We're not promised another breath, folks. This may be your last opportunity to make things right with Christ. So if you're here today, we encourage you to come and receive Him before it's eternally too late. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're not living the life that God has called you to live. Maybe you are focused on other people and what other people have and you just want to simply come and say, Lord... I thank you for saving me. I thank you for loving me. And I want to just devote my life to you. We encourage you to come and do that. If you want to come join the ministry of Huntsville Baptist Church, we would be, we'd love to have you. Whatever God is saying and doing in your heart and your life, we just encourage you to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit. Be kind of gracious, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. And Lord, we just ask that during this time and during this occasion, I don't know why you've brought us together as you have today. I don't know why you brought this message upon my heart the way you did. But I know that it's intended for someone here today. I don't know who, but I know you do. And Lord, we just ask that before we take communion, that, that all hearts would be free, all hearts would be clear, knowing the calling that you have given us in life and knowing the people that you know us to be the love and compassion you have upon us is incredible and we thank you for that we just ask that you would have your will and your way in this time of invitation
expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Michaela Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. When I first wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, truth wasn't so much an issue as what is truth, can you know truth, but now it is. Some of the issues are different because of the internet, like the claim that Jesus doesn't even exist. Are there other Gospels that should have been in the Bible? Is Christianity just a copycat religion? So when we updated this, because I hear it from students so often, I thought we have to have the single best chapter that responds to this claim, and I think we do. We had to rewrite Evidence demands a verdict because there's so much new evidence out there. It's like one Greek scholar said, the evidence now for the scriptures is like a tsunami, an avalanche that is hitting. And we want you to be aware of that. We want every young person, every student, every pastor, every professor to be aware of the new evidence out there. To understand not just what they believe, but why they believe it. Evidence that demands a verdict. On sale everywhere October 3rd, 2017. Go to hashtag true evidence. At STR, we have always cared about Christianity worth thinking about. And when I found out that the SES conference this year was about pursuing a faith that thinks, I realized that if you go to this conference, you're not only going to have the information you need to deal with people who challenge your conviction, you're going to have the information that will help you deal with the toughest critic you'll ever face, and that's you. That's why I hope to see you there at the SES conference, October 13th and 14th in Charlotte, pursuing a faith that thinks. We're standing on the ground that for three years we have prayed that will one day be the site of the greatest Christian school in the world. We prayed that way. We believe God gave us this mountain for that purpose. I've said to these young people repeatedly and I say it again to you today. You are the hope of America. When you leave the graduation platform of liberty, I want you to leave it running. Leave it running with a vision burning in your soul. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision, make it plain.
We're training champions to change the world. Those words, spoken by Dr. Jerry Falwell, cast a vision that brought us to this mountain. Those who were around during the early years remember attending convocation in a 3,000-seat tent because no building on campus could hold all the students. Then there was the winter of 1977 when the building they'd been using for classes was scheduled for demolition. Their response was to stand in the snow for two hours, praying, Welcome to Liberty where we train champions for Christ. Welcome to a world of audacious dreams, a world where strong character is built with grit and grace, a world where men and women go out bravely to fix what's broken. What one man dreamed, his son built. Ten years ago, President Falwell picked up the mantle his father laid down, and the university has been flourishing in ways thousands of faithful dreamers had seen only in their prayers. Our tradition of unwavering faith is their legacy, because you are what they prayed for. Graduates, you will face seemingly insurmountable hardships and obstacles often throughout your career. At times, everything will seem hopeless and every fiber of your being will be screaming for you to quit and give up on your dreams. But persevering in those darkest hours is what separates the winners from the losers. Only if you press on will you achieve greatness. In less than 50 years, 154 students have become 110,000. Missed paydays have become a billion dollar campus, and what began as a preposterous dream has become the largest Christian university in the world. With elite Carnegie status, an FBS football, oh, we're coming, and we're coming to win. But we're not leaving our convictions behind. We still have the privilege, the right, and the responsibility to show the world what Jesus looks like. We still believe that hard work, courage, and integrity define our faith as much as compassion and kindness. We are bold. We are innovative. We are faithful and diligent. We celebrate both our diversity and our unity as one family. At Liberty, the privilege to mentor the next generation of Christian leaders is not something we take lightly because virtues necessary for a praiseworthy life are not built overnight. They require scholars with determination, creativity, and a passion for wisdom. Our faculty have done great things, helped invent hearing devices for the deaf, done groundbreaking research on technology addiction, influenced the way crime labs use DNA analysis, they have written film scores, won Emmys, and made headlines in archaeology, philosophy, and paleontology. But their greatest legacy will be you. We defy the stereotypes that others try to impose on us. Your classmates are directing their own films, interning at NASA, and taking on poverty across the globe. While the world sees champions as only victors, we will reclaim the word and its meaning. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge, do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defy
defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's calling wherever it may lead. It is who we are, it's what we stand for, it always has been and always will be. To learn more about Liberty University, go to liberty.edu.